I'm Tom Perumian, KTSA News. All right, thank you, Tom. And here we are. Good afternoon on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Uh, Jack Riccardi, right now as we speak, uh, former President Donald Trump has boarded uh, his plane at uh, Reagan National Airport. He has completed the uh, errand of the day, which was going into the federal court in Washington, D.C. this afternoon, pleading not guilty to all of the federal charges uh, from special counsel Jack Smith. And so the third set of indictments uh, on Donald Trump is now over. Uh, he flew out of uh, New Jersey this morning. He's flying back to uh, his resort in Bedminster, New Jersey, uh, tonight. Now, when we talk about this ongoing series of cases against Donald Trump, one of the questions we ask is, is there a crime? Was there a crime? Is this a prosecution or is this a persecution? But I want to ask you a different question, and for the purposes of this question, let's assume for the moment, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is what you think or I think, but let's assume for the moment that what they are charging Donald Trump with here is a real crime. All through the indictment, which I finally have had a chance to read, you see the phrase, phrases, um, knew it was false, knowingly false, dozens and dozens of times, knowingly false. He says things, he does things, he's, he knows it's false. The, the, the knowingly false is necessary because what they're charging him with is fraud. But what he's claiming is fraud. Donald Trump is claiming that there was massive fraud that denied him what would otherwise have been his victory and his re-election in 2020. The government is charging him with fraud. The government is charging him with claiming things that he knew were not true. But if that's a crime... It's important, and this is something that we've heard our legal experts say, and this is something that I've read a lot about the last few days. It's important to determine whether he really believed the election was stolen. And so my question to you is, do you think that Donald Trump really believed the election was stolen? And that's an important question. Did he honestly believe what he was saying? Because if he honestly believed what he was saying, and if he was acting on the recommendations of attorneys on whom he relied, that's one thing. If he was going around saying something that he knew was not true, and he had been provided ample evidence that it was not true, then some experts say that that's a crime i'm not saying that but my question to you is do you believe he believed the election was stolen now remember donald trump whatever we think of him is a man that hates defeat cannot admit it and a man who has a long history of listening to people who tell tell him what he wants to hear uh, of course, you don't get to be successful that way, and I, I'm not saying he's always done that, but he has a history of doing that. The indictment 
basically lays out that there were all of these people, people that supported Donald Trump, people that worked in his reelection campaign, people at his Department of Justice, Republicans at the state level, all of them were telling him, honestly, sir, you've lost. You've got to concede and acknowledge that you've lost. And Jack Smith is saying that Donald Trump was so determined to stay in power that he just ignored all that. And therefore was urging state government people in Georgia and Arizona and other places to recognize his electors instead of Biden, pressuring Mike Pence to intervene uh, in the tally of electoral votes, and that this was a criminal plot to stay in power. So that's their explanation, obviously. But what if Donald Trump really believed that the election had been stolen? What if he believed he was witnessing something we've, uh, on a scale we've never seen before in American politics? We've, we've had chicanery in elections before, locally and even nationally. There's, there's good reason to believe that JFK may not have really won the election in 1960, that there may have been just enough uh, mischief with the vote in Illinois to flip the election from Richard Nixon to John F. Kennedy. But, but again, that was in a couple of places, not several, not nationwide, not widespread. And Donald Trump could say in his defense, and I assume he will say in his defense, uh, I, I believed everything I was saying and I was pursuing every remedy that every one of my advisors, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, all these lawyers, who, by the way, are named as co-conspirators, I was just doing everything they thought we could do. So the government will say he knew he had lost. And he'll say, I didn't think I did. And if this is a crime, if, if there is such a thing as fraud, then that's important. What do you think? 210-599-5555. In the uh, indictment, there are stories. There's a story of Trump meeting with the Joint Chiefs of Staff right after New Year's, and they're talking about an international situation uh, and whether or not to act on it. And Trump says in the meeting, um, we'll leave it for the next guy because there's not time to do anything about this particular situation that they're discussing. And Trump says... Yeah, you're right. It's too late for us. We're going to leave that to the next guy. And there's a a story told of a meeting he's having with advisors also in early January where he's watched Sidney Powell on television. And Sidney Powell was on this show, you may remember, and and all over the media talking about all the uh, conspiracies and plotting involving Dominion voting machines and software and fake ballots and George Soros and other things. And in this story, in the indictment, Trump is watching her on television with advisors and remarks that she sounds crazy, his words. So what was he thinking? What was Donald Trump thinking? Proving a conspiracy to defraud the United States, which may, may not even be a crime here, because this is not a financial fraud. He, he, he wasn't attempting to defraud people of money. But if you're trying to make that case, you have to say that he was deceitful, that he was knowingly 
making a false claim. They have to prove that he knew he was acting unlawfully. Remember, everything he's doing and advocating doing, he says lawyers were telling him he could do. What do you think? 210-599-5555. I don't think they have a crime. I don't. But if that's what they want to prove, if that's going to be the way they go, and if I'm reading this thing right, I'm not a lawyer. That's why we bring lawyers on the show. I'm not a lawyer, but I read this thing as carefully as I could with the limited knowledge I have. Um, I think their problem is going to be that his defense can be, well, if anyone thought an election was being stolen, they'd ring the alarm bell. And if, if you were the one being stripped of an office you had run for and you believe you had won, uh, why wouldn't you do and why wouldn't you try to do all the things that are offered you and, and advised to you by your legal team? So let's talk about that. 210-599-5555. The cancel mob is coming for the Orlando Magic. This is a very weird story. came out of nowhere. The Orlando Magic of the NBA, which is one of many NBA teams, virtually all of them, to have a pride night this spring, donated $50,000 to Ron DeSantis' Super PAC. And the New York Times and many others are calling them out as that being a contradiction with the NBA's social justice policies. Uh, the donation uh, was made uh, by the um, owners, so it wasn't as if the players made the donation. Uh, these teams are owned by businessmen and women, usually groups, and it is not unusual to donate to the sitting governor in your state or even other officials in your state as part of maintaining good relations and greasing palms and so forth and so on. Uh, The magic players probably don't like Ron DeSantis, but they're not the ones that have to do business with the state of Florida. It, It seems like kind of a stupid controversy because what it seems to imply is that you cannot support with your own money what you believe in. So you're not asking the players to wear DeSantis patches on their jerseys or um, you're not asking the fans to um, participate in some way. You're, you're a businessman. You're doing business in Florida. You're supporting the governor of Florida because you probably do business with his administration or maybe because you actually believe in him politically. Um. It's going to be very weird if we're saying, which we appear to be saying, that you cannot um, both be an NBA owner and support a politician that is not supported by the NBA. So we're going to see what happens here. This was a story in the Washington Times. Regional electricity providers warned Wednesday that the Biden administration must delay the retirement of fossil fuel power plants to give renewables time to catch up or risk major energy shortfalls. 
They said the grid reliability would be jeopardized by too quickly transitioning electricity used from coal and natural gas to wind and solar. Told reporters that the extreme heat conditions this summer underscore the need to slow down the closures of power plants. Now, the left is arguing that the heat wave is why we need to do the green energy revolution right now. But the people that actually have to provide and generate power are saying you can't have both. If you go too fast, there will not be enough power. And I was thinking about it. One of the hallmarks of the modern left in America is the conservation of scarcity. They are almost worshipful of shortages and scarcity. They seem to love it. They seem to have a perverse joy in announcing that there is a, a insufficient supply of something, uh, in making it or regulating things so that not enough of something can be produced. And it used to be that if you were in office, shortages were fatal to you, politically speaking. Like, if, if people were running out of stuff, if you couldn't keep gas at the pump, if you couldn't keep the lights on, if you couldn't keep bread and milk on the shelves in the grocery stores, you were, you were, you were a goner at the next election. Whether it was your fault or not, people were going to blame whoever was in power for scarcity. And that was one of the downfalls of Jimmy Carter was during the energy crisis under his presidency, which was not, not a product of his presidency, not, not a result of his policies, but it occurred under his presidency. Jimmy Carter decided to tell people to put on sweaters and, and uh, you know, lower their thermostat. And people didn't like it because that's not what they expect their leaders to tell them. We're not a third world country. We're not a country of scarcity and depravity. Um, but now the left seems to worship scarcity. And in fact, scarcity is now proof that we're doing things right. So if there's not enough meat, good. <laughs> if there's not enough energy, good. If there aren't enough cars, good. If there aren't enough roads for the cars to drive on, good. Give it to them good and hard. And the name of the game is that your life has to change. You're not being told, we'll take care of it, we've got you. Which was what politicians always used to say, whether it was true or not, whether they had a plan or not, they'd always claim, we got a plan, we're going to take care of this. Don't worry, when you, when you flick the switch, the lights will come on. There'll be food at the grocery store, we'll, a chicken in every pot. That was always the theme in American politics. This is the land of plenty, and we're going to keep it that way. The new approach is that you've had it too easy, you've got too many comforts, you don't need those gas stoves and water heaters, and you don't need central air, and heck, you don't really even need a car. And it's creepy, right? Because they're telling you something, and they're selling you something that goes against your instincts. So the message is, we have to be saved from ourselves. We have to start giving up the things we're used to, we have to have what one Biden administration official calls simpler lives. And simpler lives is code for scarcity. 
What do you think? 210-599-5555. We've got all this to talk about and more. We'll stay on top of the breaking news. We're going to your calls. What do you think about the Trump question? Do you believe he believes what he has been saying? Because that's important if you're going to prove that he committed a crime. And I'm not saying he did, but the people who are saying it are going to have to explain that or make that case. Tell me what you think. 599-5555. Do you believe that Donald Trump believed that he had been uh, ripped off? Because if he believed what he was saying, and if he was exploring these options out of that belief and on the basis of legal advice, um, that's one thing. If he knew he had lost, if he was saying in private, yeah, we've only got a few more days, we're out of here, then it's different. I don't think it's a crime either way, but, but let's just say, for the sake of argument, to prove their crime of fraud, it's important whether he believed and was acting deceitfully or not. You know who's doing something really smart right now is Ron DeSantis. Uh, he can't he can't get any coverage really with everything going on with uh, Trump. So he has um, agreed to debate Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. Uh, now, Gavin Newsom isn't officially running for president, but almost everybody who watches this stuff thinks there's a better than 50-50 chance that he's going to get in. He's going to challenge Joe Biden in the, in the primaries. Um, or, or he may wait until something happens where Biden steps aside from the race and Newsom then you know jumps in. But um, whether Newsom is in the 24 race or getting ready for the 28 race, uh, these two are the, like, the leading lights of the next generation in their party. Very smart to do this debate. Um, it also showcases uh, DeSantis as a tough, smart debater, um, and it uh, maybe draws a contrast with Trump, who, of course, has said he won't even come to the Republican debate later this month. But anyway, I think that's a pretty smart thing to do, and, and there really isn't much else for these Republican candidates to do uh, at the moment Right. I mean, they can they can give their opinion about what's happening with Trump, but they can't get any coverage for themselves or their positions or anything else. And so right now, the Republican candidates other than Trump have been reduced to basically guests on cable. Right. Uh, Analyzing the Trump charges. I I, I think what DeSantis is doing, therefore, is really smart. It's going to put him in the news. It's going to put him up against Newsom. Uh, Newsom is not a dummy. But I, I think, and I don't just say this because I agree with him, I think DeSantis uh, can, can deliver a pretty good beating, and we'll see what happens. Um, if you think about what's going on with the Biden family business in the meantime, needless to say, they are enjoying a respite because of Trump's indictment and his plea today. But we are kind of at an interesting point, right, Now that we have the Devin Archer testimony and the actual transcript of it is out, you can read that too. We're kind of at the same place we were. Somebody made this analogy, and I thought it was a great analogy. We're kind of at the same place we were with Bill Clinton and the blue dress. So if you go back to the the good old days of the Drudge Report in 1998, remember that? 
Um, at the beginning of the year, Bill Clinton was giving his I did not have sexual relations with that woman uh, speech at the White House. And then the you know, the blue dress and the DNA sample, and then later that year he did give another speech where he, he said, Yeah, I did I did do it. Um Biden has always emphatically denied I had no knowledge, I was never involved, I never talked to him, um, let alone benefited from his business dealings. Um, is this the blue dress moment for Biden, would you say? Because now you're going to have to come up with something else. I don't think there's too many people who believe you talked about the weather. But the other thing that's also comparable here is that if you remember, and I, you know, I was doing this show at the time. I, I, I think I can say this with some authority. We were talking all the time, every day, about Clinton and Lewinsky, just like now we're talking about Joe and Hunter. Not in, not in exactly the same way, but you know what I mean. But it wasn't moving the needle with people. I mean, like, the, the, the people that hated Clinton just had more reason to hate him, and the people that loved him uh, could could rationalize and could explain and could live with all the tawdry stuff that they were hearing. And I, I, it seems like the same thing here. Not that Biden is anywhere near as popular as Clinton or as good at politics as Clinton, or that the country is doing as well as it was doing under Clinton. But the fact is that when you look at the way people are reacting to the Biden scandal, it's this, it's it's once again, you know, the blue teams over here with their explanation and their rationalization and the red teams over here and Fuego with even more outrage. So if it is a blue dress moment, that might not mean anything. Uh you can join the show right now at 210-599 5555. Do you believe that Donald Trump believed what he was saying about the 2020 election? Uh, was he sincerely pursuing all remedies and avenues in a circumstance where he believed he had been defrauded? Or was he committing fraud by going around and saying things that he didn't believe in private? And Jack Smith tries to make the case in the indictment that in private meetings in certain moments, Trump says things that make it sound like he knows he's leaving office on January 20th. He's resigned to it. He was told by people around him that he had to be, and he was. Which is how they get to where they can charge him with doing things that were deceitful, that he knew were fraudulent. So I don't believe they have a crime here. And I also believe there is a rich history of people claiming election fraud and you know, we're acting like no one's ever come out and said this before, but here, here's a little uh, sample somebody put together uh, of a few other people saying it. Cut number one. Without voter suppression, Stacey Abrams would be the governor of Georgia. Andrew Gillum is the governor of Florida. You refuse to concede and say that you lost. Do you stand by that decision today? Absolutely. The election was not fair. The process was not fair. If Stacey Abrams doesn't win in Georgia, they stole it. It's clear. It's clear. I think that Stacey Abrams' election is being stolen from her. It was not a free and fair election. Brian Kemp stole the gubernatorial election from Georgians and Stacey Abrams. But will I say?
say that this election was not tainted, was not a disinvestment and a disenfranchisement of thousands of voters. I will not say that. Mm, okay. Um, I, I think, as we talked about yesterday, I think you have to be able to say it. I think you have to be able to ring the alarm bell if you think there's a fire. And that's the analogy I would use. I think the building's on fire. I have reason to believe the building's on fire. I'm pulling that alarm. Is different than, hey, I think I'll pull the alarm. So I, I, I don't know what the um, ins and outs are going to be of a jury in D.C., I realize that whatever happens uh, to Donald Trump, he still has appellate courts and even the Supreme Court to go to. Uh, there may be, at the end of all this, the determination by the Supreme Court that there weren't actually crimes in these indictments, that you can dislike what Donald Trump did or dislike him, but it's not criminal. Uh, but there obviously is a history of people um, saying, you know, we was robbed. 210-599-5555. It's interesting how complicated you read the, if you read, I'll say this. If you read the, the, the document that he pled uh, not guilty to today, um, you'll, you'll read it more than once because it's, it's tortured. The details of the accusations against President Biden are, by comparison, pretty simple. I don't think people need a lot of help understanding bribery and greed um, and understanding that you told an emphatic, all-encompassing lie um, that is now contradicted in, in a number of ways. So we have more and more evidence that while Joe Biden was vice president and shortly after, his son was in business to exploit his father's name and identity and access. They're pretty open about it. Even Hunter Biden admits there's nothing else going for him but that. And they refer to it as a brand, selling the brand. I mean... It's not like you need to draw a diagram or take notes. It sounds like bribery. It has all the elements except somebody writing bribery on the memo line of the check. Whereas with Trump, you have this guy that has an ego and doesn't like to lose and and doesn't listen to stuff he doesn't like the sound of, which are all provable faults. They're not crimes, but they're faults. He tends to look for confirmatory information and ignore, you know, oppositional information or, or what have you. So if you tell him he's right, you have his ear. If you tell him he's wrong, you may not. I don't think he's always done that. I don't think he could have been a success if that was all he did. I mean, he'd be adult. But but I, I think there is that, he does have that, that streak in him. And you have people around him who, who share his conviction and are telling him from their 
expertise as attorneys, you got to fight this. And again, is he pulling that fire alarm because he believes there's a fire? And who wouldn't? And look at how many people have pulled it. Hillary pulled it. Stacey Abrams pulled it. Democrats who wouldn't certify the elections of George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004 wouldn't pull it. Or, excuse me, did pull it. So I, I, I think you have that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have Jack Smith's assertion, I think, because of the number of times that he uses phrases like um, knowingly false, knew that it was false. I mean, I didn't count them, but it's dozens and dozens of times. What he's trying to say is, publicly, Trump was egging people on and amping people up and whipping up a frenzy, including, but not limited to, the day of January 6th. He was telling you to send him money. He was telling you, we've got to fight this. He was telling you we was robbed. But then in private, he says things that make it sound like he knows that's not true. What do you think of that? And what will happen to their case if the defense brings that out? Uh, Alan writes to Jack at KTSA.com, I do not think Trump committed a crime, and he should not have had these charges brought against him, but I also think he chose to only listen to those who agreed the election was stolen and ignored the many who disagreed. He made up his mind and then looked for advice. 210-599-5555. So we'll talk about that, uh, talk about the uh, the Biden thing. There's a story today in the news about two sailors being arrested on national security charges relating to China. Fox News has the story. Uh, the first sailor, 22-year-old, assigned to a vessel in San Diego, arrested on an espionage charge related to conspiracy to share intelligence with a Chinese official. The second sailor, based near Los Angeles, conspiracy and receipt of a bribe from a Chinese official. We don't know a lot about it yet. This is a breaking story today. Don Cooper and I, my producer, we were talking about this off the air, and we were saying, you know, on a normal day, in normal times, this will be the top news story. And, of course, both of these sailors are innocent unless proven guilty, but it would be the top news story. In normal times, we would recognize that communist China is an enemy, that communist China, and there's mountains of evidence to this, is penetrating and taking advantage of our military, our tech sector, our national infrastructure, our higher education, and our policymakers. Uh, we would recognize that communist China is not a rival or a partner, as Janet Yellen recently described them. We would recognize the difference between the Beijing regime, the government, and the Chinese people. We have no issue with the Chinese people, and the people in the culture of China are rightly admired. But we would know the history of that country since its communist revolution in 1949. We would know what they have been about. We would know what they are doing and we would be mindful of it. It would be so important in normal times, China, that we would not let ourselves be distracted by all these other wars, conflicts, and global crises. We'd acknowledge them, but we wouldn't be distracted by them. If these were normal times, we would assume that both parties, whoever's in charge of the White House or the Congress, are awake and alert to communist China. 
if you were alive during the Cold War, you could be a Republican, you could be a Democrat, but you knew that both parties knew that the Soviet Union was dangerous. The Cold War didn't come and go with elections. And in normal times, we would not have to worry about whether the government of Beijing had already bought and controlled ours. And we do have to worry, because these, these are not normal times. The, the story of the sailors is barely making the news today. That, that is both fascinating and scary. While we are playing out these intensely partisan things in this country that only matter in this country, events are happening, strategies are being unfurled and unleashed, Confrontations are being uh, are, are are approaching. Moments of truth are coming. We are facing countries that are not internally divided and distracted like we are. That don't jump to a new bright shiny object every three minutes like we do. And 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 that's something to think about. We're absorbed in our own soap opera right now but the world could care less. Right before he got on the plane, uh, former President Donald Trump, under the umbrella, in the drizzle, making these comments after pleading not guilty in the federal court this afternoon. Take a listen. Well, thank you very much. This is a very sad day for America, and it was also very sad driving through Washington, D.C., and seeing the filth and the decay and all of the broken buildings and walls and the graffiti. This is not the place that I left. It's a very sad thing to see it. Uh, when you look at what's happening, this is a persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America. This is the persecution of the person that's leading by very, very substantial numbers in the Republican primary and leading Biden by a lot. So if you can't beat him, you persecute him or you prosecute him. We can't let this happen in America. Thank you very you much. Want these, like, you want these trials to happen before mm. um, So then he walked away and got on the plane. Uh, it, you know, I, I was listening to, I think it was on Fox, they were discussing, and we had kind of talked about this with our legal people a little bit yesterday. You got all these cases going on. How do you uh, logistically manage them? Do you does everybody get together and make sure they're not scheduled at the same time? Do you um, make allowances for Donald Trump's due process rights to prepare for his trial, even though we all know he has lawyers, but but the law recognizes that you as the defendant. Um, and I was thinking, it, it only gets worse if people hear, oh yeah, the judges all had a conference call. Or all the different prosecutors, you know, the one in Manhattan, the one in Georgia, Jack Smith, if they all have like a conference call. I mean, then what do people think? And so um, I kept, I kept kind of like game this out or game this through. So if these trials go forward, provided charges aren't thrown out at some point, uh, there's a very good chance that Trump is found guilty in one or more of them, maybe all of them. 
And then he has the appeals process. He can appeal to the to the you know circuit courts, and then ultimately to the Supreme Court. And then if he's at the Supreme Court, can you imagine the wailing and gnashing of teeth if the Supreme Court, nine justices, three of whom he appointed, overturn one or all of his convictions? I'm not saying this jokingly. That is going to be brutal. Uh, that is going to make the summer of 2020 look like, you know, the church picnic. It, it, that is going to be brutal. And, oh, by the way, we'll be conducting an election. So the uh, former President Trump's been uh, indicted. He's pled not guilty. Uh, I guess the next thing that will happen is we'll go up some more in the polls. Uh, and we were just talking before the news about how you, you, you're going to have this crowded calendar of trials and in different places and all moving along on their own timelines and um he may or may not be present for them but he obviously will have a strong interest in them they will compete for coverage uh with the presidential primaries the other candidates it it, it may make it impossible for any other Republican to get any other coverage, and therefore impossible for any other Republican to catch up to him. And it may not matter anyway, because if his numbers keep going up every time he gets indicted, uh, he'll be statistically clinching this thing before we've ever had a primary. But it's really interesting to think about what they're, what they're trying to construct in the Jack Smith charges. Jack Smith thinks that Trump was trying to stay in office past January 20th and was making claims he knew were false. But I'm asking the question, what if he thought they were true and still does? What else would a person do? What would anybody do? What are you supposed to do? And isn't it interesting that Jack Smith can say, on the one hand, Trump committed fraud because he kept referring to the election as stolen um, and he was the real winner. But then Smith also cites anecdotes where Trump talks about leaving office knowing that he doesn't have much time left. He's meeting with the... In one meeting, he's with the Joint Chiefs, and they're talking about some international situation. We don't know what country it was. And they were contemplating a military mission, a military course of action. And it was recommended to the president that he didn't have enough time left in office to do it. The inauguration was only two weeks away, to which Trump replies, yeah, you're right, it's too late for us, we'll give that to the next guy or a meeting he has uh, with um, advisors, and they're watching Sidney Powell on television, claiming that the voting machine company was in cahoots with George Soros and the Clinton Foundation and Venezuela and everything else, and 
Trump comments that she sounds crazy. This is one of his lawyers. So is this a guy that was plotting and planning to stay in office? It's kind of hard to tell what he was thinking. What do you think? Do you, do you think he believed what he has said and is saying? Or do you think he was really deep down privately knew he'd, knew he'd been defeated? 210-599-5555. How do we explain all of the people over the years who have claimed they won elections they, or that elections were stolen from them? How do we explain people who discounted the 2016 election? Hillary Clinton said it was stolen. Jimmy Carter said it was stolen. Hillary Clinton called Trump an illegitimate president. Now, I know those are words. There's no power behind them. But you had people ginning up a so-called resistance because we're supposed to believe they believed what they were saying. So what if we give everybody the benefit of the doubt? What if we say that anybody who claims to have been cheated or defrauded in an election has the right to say it, which in fact is true, you do. Then what would somebody in Donald Trump's position do, hypothetically? Well, they would, not being lawyer, a lawyer, they would seek out lawyers. Did he seek out the right lawyers? Well, I don't think he did. I think they were terrible lawyers. It, it looked to me like he had a bunch of, you know, third-rate, uh, basically bumlickers, you know, people that people that had uh, praised him and buttered him up. I just don't think he had good legal advice. I really don't. Um, but nonetheless, these are the people, and this is what they told him he could do, and he did it. And if you believed you were uh, seeing smoke and smelling a fire, you would pull the fire alarm. And he did. But he also left office on January 20th. His people didn't pry the W's off the computer keyboards. They didn't uh, trash the White House. They left. Here's um, Al Sharpton on Morning Joe lamenting how awful, what a tragedy this is, uh, Donald Trump's uh, behavior, what a tragedy this is in our, in our history. Listen to this. This is Al Sharpton, cut number six. One day our children's children will read American history. And can you imagine our reading that James Madison or Thomas Jefferson tried to overthrow the government so they could stay in power? That's what we're looking at. We're looking at American history and how it will play out is going to be very important. What if, what if James Madison or Thomas Jefferson had tried to overthrow a government? I, wait a minute, I've never thought of that before. What, if, what, what would that even look like? I guess they'd maybe write a declaration of independence from that government. And they would call on their countrymen to um, form a new uh, government, right? And they might talk about self-evident truths and all men being created equal. I guess that's what would happen if James Madison and Thomas Jefferson had ever been involved in something like that. Yes, I... I do hope, Reverend Sharpton, that our children are still reading American history someday. I'm not so sure they will be. But if they do, they'll know more about it than you do. He just happened to name possibly the two most key people 
in what was the American Revolution. The American Revolution. I mean, I'm, I'm laughing, but where do they find these people? You know, honestly, that's the best you can do? That's your, that's your A-team for reacting to the indictment of the president? Uh, 210-599-5555. Um, Tucker Carlson, when he was fired from Fox, had an interview in the can, ready to go, with the former chief of the Capitol Police Force, a man named Stephen Sund. And here he is talking about that interview uh, on the uh, Russell Brand podcast that we played a, a while back. Here's what he said about that, cut number three. And then I interviewed the chief of the Capitol Police, Stephen Sund, in an interview that was never aired on Fox. By the way, I was fired before it could air. Um, I, I'm going to interview him again. But Stephen Sund was the totally non-political, worked for Nancy Pelosi. I mean, this was not some right-wing activist. He was the chief of the Capitol Police on January 6th. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That crowd was filled with federal agents. What? Yes. Well, he would know, of course, because he was in charge of security at the site. So the more time has passed, now it's been two and a half years, it becomes really obvious that core claims they made about January 6th were lies. So I'm going to play you a little bit after we check traffic. I want to play you a little bit of what this uh, man, Stephen Sund, says. Um, He was fired like a day or two later by Nancy Pelosi. And the explanation at the time was that, 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 that he had been incompetent that he had mismanaged preparedness for and response to the J6 insurrection. Um, and this was an interview that Tucker Carlson had planned to air on Fox News. And a lot of people think, I, I don't know if there's proof of this, that the firing of Tucker Carlson had a lot to do with Fox's settlement with Dominion Voting Systems and that this kind of um, content was problematic for Fox, given that they had already made that settlement. Imagine that you're not just watching what happened on January 6, 2021, the way many of us were, but you're in it. And you're not in it as a protester. You're in it as a police officer. Imagine that you're fighting to defend a building that you work in every day. And then, in the hours and days that follow, <coughs> you're thrown under the bus and accused of being incompetent. And imagine if you knew that what really happened was not what people were being told happened. So, in what would have been his next show on Fox News Channel, Tucker Carlson had an interview with the former police chief of the Capitol Police, Stephen Sun, who had also written a book about his experience. And Fox told Carlson he was fired, and that interview could not air. Well, this is what Stephen Sund tells Tucker Carlson. Take a listen to this, cut number four. I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, why did you write this book? I try to do what I can to get the truth out. Yes. You know, they didn't want me to testify in uh, in February, on February 23rd at the Senate hearing. I actually had to go in and talk to a friend of mine on one of the oversight committees to say, 
I will come there in person. I want to be there. I want to testify. So I'm glad you think I'm reserved. I'm, you know, to be honest with you, I'm a little pissed off. Um, if people were reporting the intelligence correctly, if I was allowed to do my job as the chief, I got a significant experience. If I was allowed to do my job as the chief, we wouldn't be here today. And it's all, you know, everything appears to be a cover-up. Like I said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but when you look at the information the intelligence that it had, military had, I'm denied National Guard while we're under attack for 71 minutes. You're in a fight? Yeah. A fight for a couple of minutes. Yeah, one wears minute. You out. One minute. <laughs> I was going to say, 60 seconds, three minutes. Yeah, Let me tell you, it wears you out. My officers were fighting for 80 minutes. It sounds like they were hiding so, the intelligence. And that's what I'm getting at. Is it doesn't? It's not a far stretch to begin. Well, I don't know what the other explanation is. You know, it's it's sad when you start putting everything together and thinking about the way this played out. You look at what's happening. Was that their end goal? I don't know. As a cop of 30 years, I'm a, I'm a rule of law type of guy. Yeah. You know, there's a reason that Lady Justice is depicted with a blindfold, and that is exactly what has happened. They have stripped that blindfold away from Lady Justice, and no, it's not perceived as being fair anymore. I don't know what his politics are, what his background is. He, I, I know that he's a law enforcement professional. I know that he served at the pleasure of the Speaker of the House, which at the time was Nancy Pelosi, because she fired him. Um. I know that he says in that interview that there were, he's not guessing, he's saying he knows there were um, federal agents in that crowd. Quote, it was filled with federal agents. There were people he recognized. And so um, when we were talking yesterday about if January 6th hadn't happened, you would have a very hard time constructing the prosecution of Donald Trump, right? You might not even be able to do it. Um, you start to wonder, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not asking you to believe this. I'm certainly not telling you I know this. But you do start to wonder... Is it so useful because you created it? Is it one of those things that is too valuable to be coincidental? Because I remember thinking even that day, and I might have even said it on the radio that day, that this crowd is handing Donald Trump's enemies and opponents the club with which to beat him. I know a lot of us thought that. We couldn't have foreseen everything that would happen. Probably didn't foresee multiple indictments. But, I mean, you, 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 um, you either have to believe that Donald Trump's critics and enemies are just very lucky people, that things just happen in ways that are super beneficial to them, or you do start to wonder if they weave together and fabricate circumstances. Again, the, the the genesis of it, the kernel of the circumstances was there because Trump had the rally. It was there because he was he was telling people that the fight was in DC, which it wasn't. But what actually happened at the Capitol, what we see on the video with people with with um police officers trying doors and holding the door for people and 
when we see people walking in unopposed, uh, when you hear Chief Sund say denied support, denied intelligence, not allowed to do my job, he's pissed off about that. He even says, could it possibly be that they wanted something to happen? You do wonder. Because otherwise you have to believe in luck. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't really believe in luck. I think you make your luck, you know? I mean, some people say don't bet on horses, it's all luck, but you can study the horse and you can know things about a horse. And you can make an educated guess about what a horse will do in a race. It's not all luck. It's only luck if you don't read the racing form and know anything about horse racing. This could have been luck for, for Donald Trump's detractors. This could have been that, that a bunch of crazy people set up a perfect way of making sure he'd never be president again. Or, because it works so well, because it fits the key fits the lock so beautifully, maybe it got a little help. Maybe it got a lot of help. Tell me what you think. 210-599-5555. And remember, what would James Madison or Thomas Jefferson do? Sorry, I can't help myself. Oh, my goodness. Never see Thomas Jefferson or James Madison involved in any kind of a revolution. It is now time. One, three, two, one. It's the final music. 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 Top ten board. We'll start with number ten. We're going back to this week in 1986, the summer of 86, the top 10 songs, and this is really interesting. I, I, I think this is probably pretty rare. Of these 10 songs, five of them are future or former number one hits. So these are big hits in the summer of 1986. And we started at number 10 with a big band in 1986. In fact, this was their only number one hit in the U.S., Genesis and Invisible Touch. Like a lot of Genesis songs, this one came about during a jam session with uh, Phil Collins and Mike Rutherford improvising lines, and Phil has said that Invisible Touch is his favorite Genesis song. It was the title track and the first single from the album of the same name, number 10, Invisible Touch. At number nine is this band's biggest hit, a number one song for Bananarama, covering the Dutch group Shocking Blue. Venus by Bananarama on its way to eventually being number one. The number eight song this week in 1986 was Steve Winwood's Higher Love, which he says is about more than just earthly love, that it's about deeper, bigger things. He says, think about it. There must be a higher love. Here's Steve Winwood at number eight.
song was co-written by a musician named Will Jennings, who also wrote uh, Tears in Heaven for uh, Eric Clapton and Celine Dion's Titanic hit, My Heart Will Go On. Uh, he says that he was influenced by his early memories of music in church, aunts and uncles singing the beautiful old hymns. His higher love is kind of a modern hymn. And Steve Winwood has been singing it a lot lately. He covered it a few years ago uh, with his daughter Lily for a Hershey's commercial. And just a few months ago, Steve Winwood performed Higher Love at King Charles's coronation concert. Number eight, Higher Love, Steve Winwood. And number seven are the first of three movie songs on this week's top ten. Kenny Loggins with his big hit from Top Gun, Danger Zone. This song will definitely be a centerpiece for the tour that Kenny Loggins is on right now. It's called This Is It, The Final Tour. And it kicks off a month from now at Niagara Falls. Kenny Loggins in Danger Zone at number seven. Another movie song at number six, Rod Stewart with Love Touch. really love the stuff Rod Stewart did in the 80s. This is a great song. This was from the movie Legal Eagles and also on his album Every Beat of My Heart. Love Touch, Rod Stewart, number six. No relation to number five, Jermaine Stewart with his only hit, We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off to Have a Good Time. Jermaine Stewart was a Soul Train dancer, and along with some other Soul Train dancers, formed the uh, uh, band Shalimar, and had this one solo hit, uh, the late Jermaine Stewart, We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off, this week it's at its peak position of number five on the charts in 1986. Up to number four with another uh, bandmate of Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel's big one, number one hit eventually, Sledgehammer. Song won nine MTV Music uh, Video Awards, which was a record at the time. It was his only number one hit. And kind of a funny thing, Sledgehammer, Peter Gabriel, replaced Invisible Touch by his former band Genesis at number one. Something that neither artist realized at the time, but recognized years later. So Sledgehammer, Peter Gabriel, this week at number four. Peter Gabriel, at the age of 73, is still making music. He has a new album coming out. And he occasionally drops a single from the album. In fact, just a few days ago, uh, he released a piece of music called Olive Tree. Take a listen to what Peter Gabriel is doing these days. (laughs) 
That sounds great, doesn't it? The album is going to be called I.O. That's Olive Tree by Peter Gabriel. All right, back to 1986. And up to number three for former go-go Belinda Carlisle with uh, her first solo single, Mad About You. This is her debut solo single after the Go-Go's. It's at its peak position this week, number three. She is on tour right now. In fact, she's on a break on her tour, which is called the Decades Tour. She'll be resuming later this month with stops in San Francisco, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles. Beautiful Belinda Carlisle, Mad About You, which takes us to yet another future number one song. Sitting at number two this week, Madonna and Papa Don't Preach. She had just been at number one a couple of months earlier with a song called Live to Tell. Uh, this is the uh, next one up for her and memorable music video. You may remember Papa Don't Preach had Madonna trying to tell her father, played by actor Danny Aiello, about her pregnancy. Very controversial at the time, uh, as Madonna often was. Papa Don't Preach at number two this week in 1986. Which takes us to... The biggest hit in San Antonio, in Texas, and the United States for this week in 1986. Peter Cetera, like Belinda Carlisle, his first solo single after leaving his band, in his case, Chicago. You might also remember this was the uh, title theme to the movie Karate Kid 2. Funny, though, um, it wasn't meant to be. This song was supposed to be played over the end credits of Rocky IV. That's what it was intended for. And United Artists, the movie studio, rejected it, which seems crazy now, because it's a great song. But solo Peter Cetera, so many people just assumed this was the new Chicago song, because even without the band, it still sounds like Chicago. Peter Cetera, number one this week in 1986 with The Glory of Love. I guess this was bound to happen sooner or later. Have you heard about this? Uh, inside the online world of people who think they can change their race. This is an NBC story. Since before she hit double digits, Elisa, age 15, said she's felt a special connection with Japan. The high school student was born in Ukraine and lives in Maryland, but now goes by the Japanese name Mayuki and believes that she will wake up one day and be Japanese. So Why not, right? You can choose your gender and choose your race. 
Um, she believes that by listening to YouTube videos with lo-fi music and photos of East Asian facial features while she sleeps. Wait a minute. She believes that listening to YouTube videos with lo-fi music and photos of East Asian facial features while she sleeps. How do you, how do you look at facial features while you sleep? Um, uh, she, she believes that um, it's changing her. She swears that her eyelids have become smaller and her hair is just a little bit darker. Practitioners of what they call race change to another, or RCTA, up, oh, it's already got an abbreviation, RCTA purport to be able to manifest physical changes in their appearance and even their genetics to become a different race. They tune into subliminal videos to give themselves an East Asian appearance or Korean DNA. Even though experts underscore it is simply impossible to change your race. What? How dare they? How dare they say that? Why would it be impossible to change your race if it's possible to change your sex? How dare they discourage the RCTA community, which I have become the biggest offender of? It's just belief, says Jamie Cohen, assistant professor of cultural and media studies at Queens College, New York City. It doesn't ever really work, but they've convinced themselves that it works. Because there's other people who've convinced themselves, gosh, Jamie, that sounds like something else we've been talking about recently. I mean, do you, do you hear what's going on here? The expert is offering a perfectly rational explanation for why race change people cannot do it. They can claim it, but it's not happening. It's not real. She might feel Japanese, this young lady, but she's no more Japanese than she was before she started RCTA. Number of racial subliminal creators have popped up on YouTube in recent years with videos racking up an average of over half a million views apiece. Um, media experts point to the potential dark side of the, I can't even say this word, exoticization? exoticization of Asian culture, saying it could be a form of modern yellow face. <laughs> um, so people are upset at this trend. People who are Asian are concerned about people who think they can turn themselves Asian in their sleep. Um. All of these concerns sound very rational and logical, and they sound just like we should be talking about people who believe they can change their gender. The article says this, experts agree race is not genetic. What? Experts agree race is not genetic. Well, what are we doing with Ancestry.com then? What? <laughs> I guess we should I guess we should bring fraud charges against ancestry.com. Uh they contend that though race is a cultural construct, it is impossible to change your race because of the systemic inequalities inherent to being born into a certain race, which is a gibberish sentence. 
Race is not a cultural construct. Race is genetic. But at least the people that are saying, hey, uh, hey, excuse me, uh, over here, you can't, you can't actually do this, are making sense. So this is a thing now. It shouldn't be surprising to us at all, and we should expect a lot more of it. We are um, paving the way for people who, and, and I'm not picking on them, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to mock or pick on people who have any number of challenges, issues, problems, mental health, any number of things. I mean, I feel sorry for somebody that, that hates who they are so much that they're trying to trick themselves in their sleep into waking up as someone else. Imagine that. Heck, I just hope to wake up, period, in the morning. I just hope I wake up in the morning. I go to sleep at night. I don't want to wake up as somebody else. I just want to. I just want to have another day. It's not. That's not promised me. You know. It reminded me. The girl listening to the record in her sleep reminded me of there was um, a comedian. Do you remember this, Don? I think it was Stephen Wright. He used to tell a joke about how he um, taught himself Spanish by putting on headphones. Uh, and listening to a um, language training record in his sleep. But one night the record skipped, and now he speaks Spanish with a stutter. I think that was the joke. I think it was Stephen Wright. I know that was, was the joke. I it think was, it was Stephen Wright. Yeah, it was said. Stephen Wright. Was it Stephen Wright? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, great so I hope, I hope her recording doesn't skip. <laughs> um, I, I, it's, it's, it's really fascinating to me that these experts in this article with no sense of irony with no sense of awareness are saying about the um race changers what we should be saying to and about the sex changers nope sorry doesn't work it's not real you can't do it you're 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 certainly entitled to Think whatever you want to think. You're free to feel however you want to feel. But we're not going to um, affirm that. And the other thing that's interesting is when this uh, reporter goes out and talks to um, some actual Asian people, they quite correctly uh, say that this is not a good thing. which is what women are saying and more should be saying when it comes to the sex changers. I had not heard of it before yesterday, but RCTA. I'm planning a trip to Spain, so I bought an album that teaches you the language. You put the album on, you put headphones on, you learn the language while you're sleeping. During the night, the record skipped. (laughs) I got up the next day, I could only stutter in Spanish. Mm, NBCnews.com with a story entitled Inside the Online World of People Who Think They Can Change Their Race. Even the headline is very skeptical. People who think they can change their race. Why are we being so mean? Why are we being so doubtful? Why are we... Why are we not affirming their chosen race? Why aren't we saying to them... If you want to be and choose to be and you believe God made a mistake 
and you were meant to be, let's say, Japanese, like this young lady, Elisa, then you are, and everyone should recognize it. Everyone should refer to you that way. You should be able to claim it on documents, paperwork, official declarations. Everyone around you should acknowledge it. And by all means, Japanese people need to accept it. What do they call What's that term they have for women? Oh, TERFs, right? Trans-something, radical feminists, women like uh, J.K. Rowling that won't uh, accept uh, the trans movement. So I don't know what what would that what would the acronym be for a Japanese person who's like, no, you're not Japanese. I'm Japanese. Yeah, this young lady, 15 years old. Uh, not her real name, obviously. She lives in Maryland. Uh, they they found her on the internet. Uh, she's picked out a Japanese name for herself. She sleeps at night with headphones on, listening to YouTube videos uh, that she believes are subliminally changing her facial features, the shape of her eyes, and her hair, and they call it race change to another, or RCTA. What would you change to? Have you given that any thought? You need to start thinking about that. You're like, Jack, I just heard about this. Well, get, get on it. Get going. Come on. Keep up with the times here. It's 2023. You don't just stay who you are. You don't just stay, you don't just stay what you were born. What the hell's the matter with you? I don't know what I, I, I might go with the Japanese thing. I don't know. Do I have to wear the headphones? I don't know if I can sleep with headphones. Practitioners of RCTA purport to be able to manifest physical changes in their appearance and even their genetics to become a different race. I wonder how long it takes. So they present this in the article, and then they get a bunch of experts to go, oh, this is crazy, there's nothing to this, this doesn't work, there's no science to it, it doesn't really happen. Why aren't they being race-affirming? Where are the um, protests you know what it is? I, I think I figured it out during the news. You know what it is? The RCTA people need a flag and a month. Got to have a flag, got to have a month. Has anybody claimed August? Is August any, anybody? Maybe, maybe August could be, um, you know, race change pride month. I don't know what the flag will look like. That's going to be tough because you're, you're going to have to somehow incorporate the flags of every other country into this flag. That will be very intricate. Get somebody on that right away. Get a team of people on that right away. Uh, the number of racial subliminal creators have popped up on YouTube in recent years with videos racking up an average of over half a million views apiece. That doesn't mean there's a half a million people doing it. On TikTok, dozens of accounts in recent weeks of people sharing their journeys, their race-change journeys. So then the article goes on to reach out to some actual Korean, Japanese, etc. people, and they're like, no, we're not too happy with this. Uh, this needs to be watched carefully. They're fetishizing our culture. Oh, I'm sorry, you don't get any say in it. Nobody asked the women about 
sex change, trans. No one, no one checked with women first and said, "Are you all right with this?" Well, because we won't, we won't give it the stamp of approval if you're not going to accept that these are actually women. You're going to be fine with them in your locker room. You're going to be fine with them in your bathroom. You're going to be fine with them in your sports uh, competitions. We didn't check with the women first. Why are we checking with the Koreans and the Japanese? Kevin Nadal, professor of psychology. There is a privilege in being able to change your race or say that you are changing your race. So he's saying... This is white privilege because black people can't do it. How does he know? He sounds like a white guy that's made that decision all by himself. Why couldn't they do it? I I think that um, I'm obviously I'm being kind of a facetious a hole here, but um, <laughs> yeah, we know Jack. We noticed, but I mean. I do think that one of the unintended consequences of the people that have been yelling at us the last few years, lecturing us the last few years, the people that somehow cornered Bud Light into making the single worst decision in the company's you know decades-long history, these people did not think this all the way through. They never do. People that lead these ephemeral, sudden, spun-out-of-nowhere movements, they've never thought very far ahead. Because most of what they're interested in is how they feel in the moment. But if you thought about it a little bit, if if you gamed it out a little bit, you'd realize that if people can just say, I now feel like a woman, I now feel like a man, I was born in the wrong body... I demand to be accommodated surgically. I demand to be accommodated legally. Um, I demand that everybody use my pronouns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If that's doable, if that's possible, and not only possible, but we're saying you have the right, then you have the right to, to do it. You have the right to be a collie. You have the right to be a different race or ethnicity. Um. This um, article goes on to talk to a, a girl who, um, so they, they started out with the Ukrainian-American girl that wants to be um, Japanese and what her experience um, has been. Then they talk about a girl named Aliyah, 15, also a, that's a, uh, pseudonym, born Egyptian, but wants to be Japanese and Korean. Uh, she said that after she let YouTube videos featuring images of monolid eyes and ambient music play on repeat while she sleeps, she felt that her eyes had developed different lids and she lost roughly two pounds overnight. It starts with a spiritual mental thing, and then it's your choice to change if you want to change yourself physically. Um, I'm not even really sure, wh- you know, whether it's is it is it a compliment? Like if 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 people are switching to and identifying as your 
as your race? Is that is that a compliment? Like imitation is the sincerest form of flattery? Because I could see that in one way. Like, gee, they really admire our culture or we really seem to be enviable people. But then it's also very close to kind of, I, I would say kind of like blackface, mockery, uh, lampoon. And um, the girl that, by the way, who's Egyptian and wants to be Japanese, says she was mocked for being Egyptian. She encountered, um, basically, she encountered discrimination. Well, does she not know that there's discrimination against Asian people? She unaware of that? Shouldn't somebody tell her? All of which points out, this whole the whole gist of this article, I know that's not what they intended it to be. It's supposed to be a thought piece. But what you what you draw from this article is how obviously wrong we are to affirm people who are obviously wrong. You would not, if somebody pulled up in front of your house and you were out in your yard and they asked you for directions to a local business, you would not send them the opposite direction. You wouldn't t you'd either tell them how to get to that restaurant or you'd say, I'm sorry, I don't really know where that is. Everyone would give one of those two answers. No one would just make up a bunch of turns and twists and you got to go here and do this and drive through this tunnel and get up on the highway for 10 miles and then get back. Nobody would do that. That's exactly what we're doing. When our children are coming forward to our, to our parents or to our schools and saying, I'm in the wrong body. And the business-like way that these experts and academics dismiss race change, uh, you know, the, the, the race change phenomenon, the way they knock it down, calmly, rationally, no, doesn't work that way, you can't do it. Let's explore why you think you want to do that because you can't do that. It's exactly what we should be saying about trans. Scott emailed me and said that the uh, RCTA article reminded him of the uh, that old song by the Vapors turning Japanese. I thought that too, although, and I can't really go into the details, but turning Japanese in that song is not about the, the race. <laughs> Don, you're laughing. I know, and I... You know what it's about, uh, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's British slang for something. <laughs> Which we can't get into at this current time. Could we even play that song in this climate that we? Are That's a good in? question because um, I don't really want to. First of all, <laughs> um, but second of all, yeah, you, I guess you probably uh, maybe if Jason Aldean covers it, we could we could play that version. I don't know. Uh, anyway, they're not they're not singing about RCTA, but we can talk about that. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. President, uh, former President Trump. Uh, oh, by the way, how many news organizations today reported that he was under arrest? How how ridiculous! Get it right. He had a uh, an appearance. He was not under arrest. He wasn't thrown in the back of a cruiser. He didn't. They didn't put him in orange jumpsuit. There's there's not a mug shot. I mean, come on, people. 
But anyway, he uh, he faced the music in the Jack Smith uh, charges. And uh, there's a piece on um, Newsweek's website, an opinion piece written by Donald Trump, or I guess maybe ghostwritten, I don't know. Uh, headline, the real victim of the Russiagate hoax wasn't me, it was the American people. And... Um, he has said this many times, right, in many different ways, like, you know, I'm, I'm in their, they're, they're really coming for you, but I'm in their way, and they're taking me down to get at you, and I'm your only uh, hope against the deep state, and so forth and so on. Um, and I, I think that's a very, I, I think that's a very, I mean, there's probably no one else who could say that, right? I mean, if almost any politician tried to say that, we would just laugh. And some people will laugh at him, too. But there are people, and you see it in his rallies, and you see it when you talk to Trump supporters, that there are people who believe that we need him because um, of how um, intent this this hobby, this crusade is to get him. I mean... The, you you saw it today if you checked out any of the coverage on MSNBC and CNN. There are now people who live for days like today who were uh, bathing in the and luxuriating in the language of uh, indictment and imprisonment and uh, comparing him to Osama bin Laden and Adolf Hitler and, you know, everything else. But... The more that that behavior goes on, the more it becomes clear that Donald Trump is just a, uh, a screen that people can project their own frustrations and misery on. That that makes him that makes him the indispensable man. Like a lot of people thought, if he ran for president again, it wouldn't go so well for him. That people were tired of him that people didn't like his tweets and his thin skin and his pettiness and his proclivity to get off topic, and even though he had a very successful presidency, and he should just stick to that theme. Wouldn't you like more of this? He goes in all these other directions. He gets pulled in all these other fights. And so people said, it's not going to go well. If he runs, it won't, it won't, the magic won't be there. The crowds won't be there. They said people are ready to move on. They're ready for a new face, new blood. That's what they said. The persecution slash prosecution has changed all that. He just, a little while ago, put out on Truth Social, I only need one more indictment and I'll have clinched the nomination. He's joking, and yet... It is true that his poll numbers keep going up. So they've made him essential, even though what they claim to be doing is making him impossible. He mustn't ever be president again. That's what they say. He mustn't ever get near the presidency again. He shouldn't be allowed. He shouldn't be eligible. That's what they say. If they believe that, and see the effects of what they're doing. How do you explain that? 
And I can think of two explanations. And you probably can think of others as well. I've said this before. One explanation is they really want Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee. They want to make sure that he is. And that's because the fix is already in. See, if you're going to cheat again, this is the guy you want because when you beat him, quote-unquote, and people say, wait a minute, what happened here? You go, well, well, look, we beat him, and we beat him last time, we beat him again. Much easier to steal the election from Donald Trump than it would be from a new Republican candidate. I'm not saying it would be impossible to do. I'm saying it would be much easier. So one theory is the people that are going on and on and on about, he's terrible, he's worse than Hitler, he's worse than 9-11, he's worse than, you know, the heartbreak of psoriasis. These people want to make sure he's their opponent. That's one, one idea. Another idea is that they really don't know how this all works. They don't, they don't really get us. And they look at the polls and they presume that they are doing this just right. That there are no unintended consequences. Um, and there's some credibility to that theory because, remember, the crowd that are going after Trump are also a lot of the same people who intellectually believed Hillary Clinton could not possibly lose to him. She didn't even have to campaign in the Midwest. It was a fait accompli. America was ready for its first woman president. It had to be her. They wanted her. I'm with her. Remember that? We owe it to her, they said. Little girls will look up to her, they said. These are not people that are well-versed. These are not people that are conversant in or uh, literate in who we are. They know their little enclave. They know their little tribe or hive, but they don't know us. They don't know anybody like us. So that's possible, too. Possible this is very contrived and engineered, and Donald Trump is going to lose, and they already know it. And that's why Joe Biden smiles and makes jokes about being bribed and eats ice cream and takes, you know, spends half of his presidency on vacation. You'd act that way if you knew you had nothing to worry about next year. Or they, they're really clueless. They really don't get who we are, how this works, what it's doing to people. They don't get the possibility that there may be new Trump voters who are not that fond of him, but who hate the deep state, who hate this kangaroo court prosecution. And, you know, think of all the people in our lives. It may be you, it may not be. I'm not trying to get personal. You don't have to answer this. But if it's not you, I guarantee, I guarantee that you know someone who has had a bad a really bad experience with the government. I don't mean your taxes went up. I mean you got, you know, robbed out of maybe your veterans' benefits. You, uh, Your company got hit with an unfair uh, regulatory regime. Uh, th- there's all kinds of ways in which people have come to hate and fear their government. And the more our government acts like our enemy, 
the more it drives people to want to strike out and make a statement and express it. And they're only given so many ways to do that. In fact, we have fewer ways of doing it than ever. But voting for this guy next year is going to feel like that, giving them the middle finger moment. So I'm not saying that's why you support him, and I'm not saying that's why everybody who supports him does, but but I could see where there might be more people than they're counting. Because you're asking the wrong question if you're asking people, do you like him? <laughs> do, you, do you favor him? There's a lot of people in this country that really don't care one way or the other about him. But they're getting pretty fed up with the way things are going. And they want to, they want to be able to say it. They want to be able to show it. And they may not have a, a blog or a podcast to do that. But they have a vote. All in a quick sand, and I'm starting to sing. I need someone to help me, but I don't know which way to turn. I know I don't have much of a choice. I'll go out of my mind. I'll into the night. Well, we've been asking you on the uh, JR poll all throughout the day uh, about uh, blowing your own horn. I don't mean figuratively. I mean, literally, like when you're driving, what is your horn policy? What is your horn usage? Do you honk your horn a lot? Are you the kind of person that gives them a blast to that horn when they do something stupid in front of you or cross over into your lane or what have you? Do you do a little after the fact horn to like say, boy, that was really dumb. You're lucky to still be alive. Are you a very judicious, um, rare user of the horn, like just a little tap once in a while, maybe to get someone's attention? Hey, I'm here. Don't back up. Or do you never use the horn? And I've heard people make the case over the years, and, and people are saying this now more than ever, you should not blow your horn because people are crazy. You lay into that horn, next thing you know, the guy shoots you or something. You don't know. You don't know what these people are going to do. People are crazy. I mean, you, 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 you can't take the chance. Just, just, just suck it up. Just be glad you're alive. What's your policy on the horn? 210-599-5555. I'm going to be honest. I use it a lot. <laughs> you're probably not surprised to hear that. We had you pegged, Jack. Yeah, I do. I, in fact, I I had to um, I had to cut back for a while uh, because it was upsetting. Just about everybody I rode with, I, I use it a lot. Um, I don't think obnoxiously. I, I always and only when the other person is at fault. Um, and I use it both as a warning, like, "Hey, you're about to swerve into me." And I've also, I've, I've been known to use it as a, hey, that was really stupid. Don't do that again. We all saw you. You know, that kind of thing. I noticed that with married couples, um, use of the horn is a is a big area of dispute. A lot of heavy horn users seem to marry no horn spouses. And there's a lot of dissension uh in marriages about 
blowing the horn a lot, blowing it too much. Why didn't you? My dad, would, my mom hated this. If she was driving, my dad would sometimes reach over from the passenger seat and blow the horn. And boy, she did not like that. Because, you know, when you're behind the wheel, no matter who presses the button, you're the one that is credited with the tune, right? So what's your horn policy? 210-599-5555. Use it often, use it a little, use it never. Uh, What are your reasons for your horn policy? We're going to see how, I'm very interested to see how this turns out. I have the feeling that horn usage is on its way out because people are generally kind of worried about the way things are going and you never know what's going on in the next car and somebody come after you. And I've had people come after me, so that that does happen. That is not imaginary. Uh, Robert is on the radio on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Robert, what's your horn honking policy? Hey, hi, Jack. I only use the horn in an emergency. Like if they're about to hit my car okay. or something really emergency. I don't use it right. like if somebody's taking too long at a red light. Because they're looking at their phone. But, you know, your policy, I I think you brought that from the East Coast. In New York City (laughs) and in Boston and all them, you go there, there's noise pollution. Robert, we drive up there. We drive with one hand on the horn. We don't even even have to reach for the horn. Our hand is already there. You you brought it to San Antonio. We're not like that here. I did. Yes, you're right. (laughs) We're not like that. We're classy. We... Yeah, no, you're you're right. I'm I'm like um I'm like the I'm like patient zero, um. That's you, right. And you're right. We, we, we do. Have more you, you hear horn? It's like a symphony of horns up there. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. I will plead guilty to that, Robert. Thank you. Um, one one thing I'll say is um, in my in my defense or in the defense of all of us who are professional horn players, um, I will I will say this. Ever since cell phones became so ubiquitous, it drives me crazy that when you're at a light and the light changes, nothing happens. I'm not saying that traffic should move a nanosecond after the light changes. But I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? The light changes and nothing happens. It, it's not that everybody is looking at their phone, but enough people are that, that they don't even know. We have got to put some kind of thing on the traffic lights that displays on your phone. We, th- they've got to invent that. You know, they've invented everything else. It should be right on your phone, like you're looking down there, you're checking your Instagram, and all of a sudden a green light lights up the screen. Because that's the only thing people see now. Janet is on KTSA. Hi, Janet. Hi. Yes, the horns are. I use the horn all day long. I try not to hit honk at the scene. Today right. I was leaving Waterburger over off of Vance yeah. Jackson at four ten. There was uh-huh. a crackhead that fell asleep on his bicycle. I even oh. honked at him. Wow. So you're just like you're just like on it all the time. Put your damn phone down and right. drive. Right. You should put it down no matter what color the light is. I'm with you on that, Janet. I'll, I'll also admit this, and I'll bet not too many people can say this. On more than one car, on more than one car, Don, have this has ever happened to you? 
On more than one car, I have broken the horn. <laughs> it it just stopped working. And I I, brought, I remember I had a car one time. I brought it back to the dealer. I'm like, yeah, the, the horn doesn't work. They were like, oh, it's probably just the fuse. I said, no, no, I checked that. I'm not an idiot. And uh, I said, wow, I've never, I've never seen this before. It just, it just didn't work anymore. I didn't tell them what happened. It seemed like a good day to talk about blowing your car horn. So we asked on the JR poll powered by River City Oral Surgery, do you honk your car horn often, a little, or never? Uh, most people say a little. 76% say they, they honk a little bit. Of course, some of them might be, <clears throat> you know, embellishing that a little. Uh, like, I think some of the littles might be a lot, but okay. Uh, 76 a little, 76% said a little. 15% said never. Wow. Like Charlie Chaplin driving around there. And 9% say they honk the horn often. Debbie says she's been known to reach for the horn once in a while. Hi, Debbie. Um, well, a couple of years ago was the last time I used my horn because mm-hmm. uh, somebody followed me to HEB. He, he wow. got mad that I, I could barely tapped my horn at him, and he followed yeah. me to HEB. Even though I took a zigzag route and tried mm-hmm. to lose him, I mm-hmm. saw him following me. Wow. And uh, he, he, he keyed my car when I went into the store. Oh, lovely. So that means you don't use your horn anymore? Not at all. Do you yell I inside the car? Life. Do you make do you make other gestures of frustration? <laughs> I've been known to do that, but okay. I try not to let people see me. <laughs> gotcha. So so you express yourself without anyone knowing it. <laughs> yeah, I hide it. Okay, I see. That's that's what the tint on the windows is for, Debbie. All right, thank you. Debbie says uh, she learned the hard way not to not to honk her horn. Um, well, we featured uh, top 10 songs from the year 1986, this week in 1986, uh, earlier. And uh, as you probably heard, Peter Cetera's uh, Glory of Love was the number one song this week in 86. Uh, the question Peter Cetera gets all the time in every interview is, will he ever rejoin the band? Uh, and he says no, that the breakup with the band Chicago was, in his words, acrimonious he did not attend their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Says he has no plans to reunite with the band whose hits were so ubiquitous. Uh, Peter Cetera and the band, songs like 25 or 6 to 4, Feeling Stronger Every Day, Just You and Me, If You Leave Me Now. He says he doesn't even think it is Chicago anymore. Really, it's more like a sound-alike group with players who change in and out. And he mocked their recent documentary on CNN, calling it a crockumentary. So I don't think we will hear Peter Cetera with Chicago, but we will hear Chicago here in San Antonio on September 19th. They'll be at the Majestic Theater. We'll leave you tonight with the number one song from this week in 86, Glory of Love, Peter Cetera.